Take your Bible and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We're in a series on revival, and uh, we're going to keep going today and the next few weeks. Next Sunday is actually a great time because it's Pentecost Sunday. It's a time when we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost over 2,000 years ago. So uh, we're going to be praying for people, sharing about the Holy Spirit next Sunday. And uh, this particular Wednesday is a prayer night. Seven o'clock, we're going to be praying, and then tonight, of course, presence encounter. Six o'clock, if you can only stay for um, the initial two hours, you're still welcome to come. If you want to stay longer, of course, you're welcome to come as well. We're going to really step it up and seek God and um, try to become almost like normal Christians. Uh, So, yeah, when you read the book of Acts, that's really the way we should be gauging ourselves. In fact, I think... There's even things in the book of Acts that, you know, they learned and they, they did a better job as they, as they grew. But we're definitely that hunger. We want that in our midst. So come on out tonight. Second uh, Chronicles 29, I'm going to start reading at verse 1 down through verse 11. Reading from the New Living Translation says, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became the king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. In the very first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He summoned the priests and Levites to meet him at the courtyard east of the temple. He said to them, listen to me, you Levites, purify yourselves and purify the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. Our ancestors were unfaithful and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned the Lord and his dwelling place. They turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors to the temple's entry room, and they snuffed out the lamps. They stopped burning incense and presenting burnt offerings at the sanctuary of the God of Israel. That is why the Lord's anger has fallen upon Judah and Jerusalem. He's made them an object of dread, horror, and ridicule, as you can see with your own eyes. Because of this, our fathers have been killed in battle, and our sons and daughters and wives have been captured. But now I will make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not neglect your duties any longer. The Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to lead the people in worship and present offerings to him. Then these Levites got right to work. Hallelujah. This is an amazing uh, story. And I encourage you, if you want to really get more out of it, read it. Read it during the week. And it's an amazing story. These were very dark and evil days. And uh, as in all different times of church history, there comes a point when the spirituality of God's people so decays that religious ritual and formality end up becoming cheap substitutes for, you know, true authentic worship of God. And the Bible, of course, speaks of this time. Paul the Apostle actually warned about that. He said it would happen in the church in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He says, there'll come a time when people will have a form of godliness but deny its power. Another translation puts it this way. They will act religious, but, he says, they will reject the power that could make them godly. And interestingly, he actually says, stay away from such people. 
Isn't that interesting? He's he's not saying, you know, stay away from all the bad people in the world, but he's saying actually stay away from people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. Now, he's not addressing, you know, just people that would deny the, the you know, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, say that the gifts are no longer for today, cessationists. But he's actually speaking about a people that reject or deny the power of the gospel by their lifestyle. And because he says they reject the power that could make them godly. So it's by their lifestyle. They go to church, they're religious, but there's nothing different in their lives than the people in the world. And he's saying, this is what the issue is. There's a people that just go through the motions, that just literally engage in religious exercise and route, but they don't have a real transforming relationship with God. And this is exactly what had happened in the days of Hezekiah. Even though these were God's people in Judah that were on fire for God, and even if you read the the two kings before Hezekiah, there was actually a reign of righteousness. God was moving in their midst. People were worshiping the Lord. And then there was introduced a new king. His name was Ahaz, actually the father of Hezekiah. And the Bible eulogizes his life in 2 Chronicles 28, 22 through 25, saying, in the time of his trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of the kings of Syria have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the door of the Lord's temple and set up altars on every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoked the Lord the God of his father to anger. So this was the time, this was the context historically of when Hezekiah assumed the throne. This was what was going on. The temple had been shut down. People could not go in and worship God. And so there were altars set up on the street corners. And these were not altars to the Lord. These were altars to Baal. These were altars to other deities. And in this time, God raises up a righteous king. Now, we don't know what causes one king to be different than another, especially when you look at the fact that, you know, a, that you look at the fact that Ahaz was so evil, so wicked, and then all of a sudden he has this son whom he raised, and he's quite different. But we know this, that God has a plan, God has a purpose, and God knows exactly what he's doing. And so in the midst of this darkness and declension, God sends a king by the name of Hezekiah, to literally instigate a turning back to the Lord that would result in an entire nation being impacted and affected. It's a very, very powerful story. And even though in Ahaz's time there was really little resistance to what he was doing by the religious leaders, things were going to change because of one man, one person, same leadership with him that had not done anything to contest what was happening by an Ahaz's reign, but now all of a sudden the same leaders are on board. And I'm telling you, it really speaks of the fact that one person who will not compromise, who will not be intimidated, but who will stand up for the truth can influence even those that are, so to speak, have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You can make a difference. I can make a difference if we will stand up for the truth. So here's, it's a powerful example of what we see. So in this time of moral decline, it actually says that 
the king, in spite of the enormity of the challenge, is determined to lead his people back to God. And he says, it's in my heart, verse number 10, to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Now, amazingly, and against all odds in the natural, Hezekiah actually prevailed in his purpose. He would see mass repentance, and he would see a renewal and a revival in his day. And as we study this story, I think there's at least four spiritual principles that we can glean from this particular narrative historically that are really principles or requisites of revival. What does it take to see revival? Well, we quoted last week, one of the quotes was Charles Finney, who said that a revival presupposes a declension. So revival is literally acknowledging that things are not good, that we are actually in a place where we need to be resuscitated, so to speak. And that's really the first thing that we have to recognize. We might think it's okay, we might think we're okay, but the truth is, are we really alive? Are we really experiencing the fullness of Jesus' life? What he died on the cross for us to walk in, are we really experiencing that? Revival is a restoration of life. It's a place where we begin to walk in what God has predestined for us from the beginning. It's nothing extraordinary. It's quite ordinary in the sense of God's purpose for us. But for us, it may seem extreme. But for God, it's normal. Because God says, this is the way I designed you. I've desired that my church would be on fire. I desire that people would come to know me every day. I desire that you would break out on the right and the left and that you would be in the head and not the tail. I desire that signs and wonders and miracles would happen. I desire that your prayers are answered. This is normal Christianity. This is what God sent his son to restore to us for. Not just this you know, religious stuff that we see in many places today where people go to church, but their hearts are still far from God. They're hurting, they're bound up, they're in bondage, they're, they're wounded, they're not able to break free from addictions. This is not what Jesus died for. Jesus died for us to be free. Jesus died for us to be transformed and to be literally turned around so that we can go out and change the world. It's very interesting when you look at the early church, I don't see them going through 10 years of therapy, the Christians. I don't see this happening. I see people that literally are just transformed in a very short period of time. I'm not saying they, had, they didn't have issues. There were issues. They, they, had, they had their own problems. But nevertheless, God set them free. He changed them. They were a work in progress, absolutely. But God was moving in their lives, and God was using them powerfully. And I don't see them struggling with all the things that we see happening in the early church today. I just don't see that when I read the book of Acts. Yes, there were false teachers. Yes, there were apostates. Absolutely. But when you look at those who were genuinely seeking after God, we see a people that are on fire for God. We see a people that have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So there's at least four spiritual principles, I believe, that if we embrace them, just as Hezekiah and his people did, we'll see revival today. We'll see the same results today. 
The first one is saturation. What I'm talking about there is getting back into the presence of God. The second one is consecration, repenting of sin and, and the way that we're living, selfish lives, egotistical Christianity, and becoming solely surrendered to Jesus to live for his purposes. And the third thing is celebration, really learning how to celebrate what God has done in your life, becoming a worshiper of God. And the last part is proclamation, sharing the gospel, taking the gospel to others. This morning, we're going to look at the first point, saturation, getting back into the presence of God. Second Chronicles 24, I'm sorry, 29 verses 24 and 25, actually, sorry, Second Chronicles 28, 24 and 25 informs us that prior to the rule of Hezekiah, that the temple had been desecrated and the doors had been sealed closed. Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. As a direct result of these doors being closed, the people of God were unable to approach the divine presence. And the Bible specifically says in 2 Chronicles 29 that the lamps were put out, Incense was not being burnt, and burnt offerings had ceased to be made in the holy place to the God of Israel. The lamps speak of the light and fire of the presence and the glory of God. Incense speaks of prayer and communion. The people were not able to have intimacy, to pray, and, and to connect with God at that level. And burnt offerings speak of the dedication of ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And that's what true worship entails, every one of those areas. It's walking in the line and the revelation of God's truth, his words, his presence. It's literally being a person that has communion with him. And it's an offering of dedication where we dedicate our lives to him. The burnt offering was the only sacrifice in the Levitical system that required the entire uh, animal to be consumed on the altar. So when Paul speaks in Romans chapter 12 where he says to offer up your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship, he's literally speaking of that burnt offering. He's saying you need to offer up your entire self. That's what God wants. He actually uses the Greek word soma, which doesn't just mean the physical body, but it means our entire being. Your entire being is to be offered to God. Jesus put it this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what it is, guys. It's not going to church. It's not just being a religious person. And you know what? God says, I know your heart. I know where you're at. I know if you're really surrendered to me. And so when we walk in that place where we come into his presence, guess what happens? When you flip a light switch on in a dark room, guess what? Things that you did not see, that you were not able to identify, all of a sudden, they become visible. Let's say the room has been, it's not been clean for a long, long time. The lights have been off. No one's occupied that room. But then, all of a sudden, one day, you decide, hey, I'm going to go in that room. I'm going to clean it. So you put the lights on, and all of a sudden, you realize, wow, is this room ever dirty? 
There's so much here that I didn't realize it was this dirty. I didn't realize there was this so much that needed to be cleaned. And that's what happens when we get back into the presence of God initially. When Isaiah had the vision of God in chapter 6, when he saw the Lord in the fullness of his glory, he saw God for who he was, and then the corresponding result is he saw himself for who he was. He said, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When we get back into the presence of God and we fully walk into the presence of God, guess what happens? It's like flipping that light switch on and we see things maybe in our lives that we don't like. But it's critical, it's necessary that those things are exposed in our life. If we're going to change, if we're going to be real, guys, you know what, and really experience real change, then we're going to have to be honest. We're going to have to be honest with ourselves. It's very interesting what God does, when we, when we walk into the presence of the Lord, guess what? We see ourselves for who we are. And the Bible actually says in James 4.10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, right? And he will what? He'll lift you up. It actually, the word that is used there in the New Testament, if you read the New American Standard, it says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. The word literally means before the face of the Lord. Humble yourself before the face of the Lord. We love numbers, right? The Lord bless you. And the Lord causes what? Face to shine upon you. But when you pray that, do you realize and you're saying, hey, God, shine your face upon me that he might expose some things that maybe you didn't want to see. But God says, what happens is when you humble yourself in my presence, what will take place is I will begin to change you. And before revival can happen in our homes, in our cities, in our nation, then we have to change. It starts with us. And God, through the prophet, uh, through the king Hezekiah, actually says, let's, deal, let's start with the leadership. Let's start with the leadership. So what happens is he gathers them. And he says, look, we've got to unseal the entrance to the temple. We've got to get back into the presence of God. Because when we get back into the presence of God, only then do we understand the reality of, the king, of kingdom living. Guys, do you know that if you make a decision outside of the presence of God, it's typically not a good decision to make? That's why we always need to be in the presence of God. We always need to get into that place where we walk and live in the presence of God. In order to experience his presence, we have to draw near to him. We have to approach him. And look, he literally, his first executive order is to unseal and to unstop the, the temple entrances that were sealed closed and to repair the entrances. Ensuring that the people would once again have access into the presence of Almighty God. We see things as they really are. Not just the bad things, but the good things. And by the way, seeing ourselves as we really are, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's something that we need if we're going to really change. But when we humble ourselves before the face of the Lord, you know, sometimes we say, oh, God, keep me humble. It's not his responsibility to keep us humble. It's our responsibility. Humble yourself before the sight of the Lord. God allows us to get all puffed up and jacked up and proud and everything else we want to do if that's what we choose. We can go and live that way. That's our choice. 
But the fact is God says, when you come into more of my presence, and the more frequently you do it, in fact, if you abide there, if you live there, the chances of pride settling in on our lives is a lot less frequent. God says, come into my presence. Let me deal with you. Let me show you who I am. Let me show you who you are. Let me show you my perception of the world. And when you see things through the eyes of God, it radically transforms everything. It changes everything. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that we think is right. But it actually says the end thereof is death. There's a way that seems right. It says in another place, there's a way that seems good to a man. But you see, it's not how we perceive things. It's looking through the filter of God's vision. It's seeing things the way he sees it. So the presence of God is the realm where the reality of the kingdom is revealed. The presence of God is the realm where the realities of the kingdom are revealed. That's what it means to get into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 4.13 tells us faith is a spirit. The mysteries of the kingdom must be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. We cannot understand who God is, what his plan for our life is, all of the deep things that he wants us to know regarding even ourselves, apart from a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them. And they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. There's a place of revelation that we have to step into. And we won't understand what God is saying, what God is communicating, apart from an encounter with him, apart from moving, shifting into his presence. Faith is the decoding device of the Spirit. By faith... What? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's the substance of things hoped for. Faith perceives as real fact those things that are not revealed to the senses. A sensual person is a person who tries to live their Christian life based on how they feel. Today I feel good. So God's good today. So when you're not feeling good, God's not good? Well... Yeah, I didn't say that. But faith is the place where we perceive the realities of the kingdom. Faith perceives as real fact the things that you cannot encounter or experience through your senses. You're not smart enough to figure God out. Sorry. All the great philosophers have said he's supra-rational. Meaning, he's not just, he's like, well, that doesn't make sense. No, no, no. It's, it's not that he's irrational, he's super rational. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts beyond your thoughts. So there's a place where we just recognize, look, God who is infinite in knowledge, God 
who understands all things. How do we expect to figure him out? Draw a circle. And in that circle, we say, how much do you think you currently uh, possess in terms of knowledge of all things? We might just put a little area there, two, three percent. And then we figure we've got God all sorted out. The fact is, we'll never understand who he is. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It is not entered into the heart of men, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But in the next verse in 1 Corinthians, he says, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. It can't be explained. It can only be experienced. It's revelation. And it comes through an encounter. And if you're not a spiritual person, you'll never understand the things of God fully. I'm not saying that we'll, there's always, the more we grow in him, the more we realize there's to know about him. But the fact of the matter is, you'll never be able to understand some of those things. And God wants to reveal his truth to us. He wants to make known his ways. He wants us to walk in the light. He wants to guide us and lead us. He wants to show us what is truth and, and what he has planned for our lives and what his word actually is saying. So it's a place where by faith we perceive those things that are not revealed to our senses. When we buy, abide in the presence of the Lord, we see and hear accurately from God. Problems that seem overwhelming to us all of a sudden just grow strangely dim. There's an old song that we used to say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in the glory of his face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's so true. Look at him. See him. Watch. Everything else shifts. Everything else is put in a proper perspective. How near is your God to you? How near are you to your God? Your perception of his proximity is critical if you're going to experience transformation in your life. Do you understand when we're drawing near to the Lord, in a sense, what we're doing is we're magnifying him. The Bible says, oh, magnify the Lord. I love it. We used to sing in African churches. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard my voice and delivered me from all my fears. And all the Africans are going, come on now. Oh, magnify the Lord. Come on. Right? And so we're called to magnify the Lord. Like, oh yeah, we can really make God bigger, right? I mean, come on. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. So what does it mean, magnify the Lord? It's our perception. It's our view of him that needs to be enlarged. Do you understand that things that are at a distance appear smaller? Ooh, that's deep. <laughs> things that are at a distance appear smaller. So it's your perception of God might seem like, man, look at my problems. They're so vast. They're so overwhelming. And God, yeah, yeah, he's out there. Yeah, yeah. But what happens is when you draw near to him, when you magnify him, then all of a sudden, God's enlarged your perception of him. And you begin to see, wow, he's bigger than my problems. 
bigger than any mountain, right? He's bigger. He's bigger than anything. God is bigger. And he's greater. And he's more powerful. And it's only as we draw near to him that we recognize this. So, like the mountain peaks in the distance, whose the loftiness cannot be adequately appreciated, so is the greatness and vastness of God cannot be fully realized until we draw close to him. We've got to draw close to him. We've got to begin to access his presence. Draw near to me. Draw close. Come close. Come near. And all of a sudden, things will begin to change. All of a sudden, you realize, wow, God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. God can do anything. There's nothing that can stand in his way. And so when it seems in the natural, man, my problems are so big, you know, this is, this is what I'm contending with and it becomes overwhelming to you and I'm not denying that those things happen, but I'm saying the answer is not to magnify your problems, not to put your eyes on your problems, but begin to draw close to God, get into his presence, begin to seek him and get closer to him through worship, get closer to him through prayer and then begin to declare the goodness of God and as the Bible says stop speaking you know to God about how big your mountains are but begin to speak to your mountains of how big your God is and declare those things from that perception that God is greater God is bigger but what if it doesn't change well guess what God doesn't change it's still true and things will change you will change it doesn't happen with one encounter now I tried it for a week didn't work I'll go back to my old lazy, complacent ways. No, it's not going to happen until you engage it as a lifestyle, until it becomes something habitual. The promises of God, listen to this. Why should I pursue his presence? Let me give you four reasons. Acts 3.19, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Come on. Who needs some times of refreshing? Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, pleasures evermore. And as I already said, James 410, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So when you draw near to him, he'll lift you up. That's the promise. You might say, well, look, I see myself and for who I am. But you know what else? You'll also see God for who he is. You'll understand things from his perspective, and he's going to lift you up. So when you draw near to him, when you humble yourself in the face of the Lord, he's promised to lift you up. Exodus thirty-three fourteen, And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You know, so many people go on holidays, vacations, whatever you want to call it, and they come back and they're not any different. There's no rest. So, well, you know, I had lots of fun or whatever, but they're not changed because rest, first and foremost, is a spiritual state. It's an experience that we have to have in the core of our being in our spirit where we are at peace with God. And before we can know the peace of God, we have to be at peace with God. Before we can walk in that place of rest, we have to know that we're resting in him, that we're trusting in him. You know, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 says, those that wait upon the Lord 
shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, right? They shall walk and not grow weary. They shall and not faint. So the word that is translated wait literally is a Hebrew word that means to bind together by twisting. And it speaks of a rope that maybe has different strands. And when you bind that rope together, it becomes one. It's saying that when we really wait on God, it's not something passive. It's not like, here I am, I'm waiting. God, where are you? Why don't you care? Like Mary and Martha, remember? But it's like, no, God, my waiting is a process that involves me drawing closer to you, becoming one with you. And as we become one with him and he becomes one with us, we become stronger. And we become like that threefold cord that can't be broken. We become stronger in him. When David had came back to Ziklag and found that the Amalekites had gone in and literally taken uh, his wife and children and all of his possessions and those of his mighty men burned their homes to the ground. David came back. It was a terrible thing. Can you imagine that, guys? We think we've had bad days at times. Can you imagine coming home and literally your house is burned to the ground, your entire family and everything you own is gone? This happens. It happens to people in some parts of the world still today. And David's men, the same men who walked with him, who literally risked their lives to get him a, a drink of water, and, and on another occasion, these same men, it was too much. It was overwhelming. And now they speak of stoning David. They speak of taking rocks and literally killing David, their commander. The Bible says that during this time, David encouraged himself in the Lord. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. Some other translations say he strengthened himself in the Lord. Very interestingly, the word that is used there, it's a different word, but it's similar to the word wait in Isaiah 40, verse 31. And it literally means to tie fast, to bind bonds. David tied himself fast to God. David strengthened himself because he became one with the Lord. He literally fastened himself to God. He literally drew his strength from becoming one with God. So if our waiting on God is not producing that fruit and the character of God in us and strengthening our faith, then we're not waiting according to the biblical definition. We're just passing time. So in your time of adversity, in my time of adversity, like King Ahaz, who became increasingly unfaithful, or we can become increasingly more faithful. The same sun in the sky that melts wax hardens clay. It's the presence of God that causes us to become more like him. As we draw near to him, we will become different. We will change. We will become stronger. 
God will do something in our lives. I love, again, Exodus 33, where the children of Israel sinned, and God says, that's it. I'm going to wipe these people out. And then finally, God says, okay, I will take, I will allow the people to proceed and enter the promised land, but I'm not going with them. I'll send an angel, an angel will go and lead the way. The promise was still being upheld by God. The Lord is saying, I'll keep my promise, I'll bring you into this land, but I'm not going with you. But for Moses, the promise wasn't enough. Unless your presence goes with us, do not bring us up from here. So the promise without the presence, Moses said, that's not enough. We've got to have your presence. What else will distinguish me and your people from any other people on the face of the earth unless your presence goes with us? Many of us would have said, oh, that's good. Thank you, God. And we would have settled for the promise. Yeah, go up to the promised land. Milk and honey, gold and silver, our own homes, no more wandering in the desert. Finally, we can put down roots. We can settle. We don't have to eat manna anymore. But Moses said, no way. If unless you go with us, forget it. We'll just rather perish here in the wilderness unless your presence goes with us. Remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 2 where Elisha, who was being mentored by the prophet Elijah, he heard that Elijah was going to be taken and he approached him and he said, I want something from you before I go. Elijah said, what is it? He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now look, if most of us, if we were Elijah, we would have said, oh, come on. Who do you think you are? I am the most anointed prophet that's ever lived, and you want a double portion? Isn't that kind of egotistical? Isn't that arrogant? arrogance at its height? But what happens is Elijah recognizes the vision that is in this man that it's been put there by God himself. And he acknowledges that what he's asked for is a good thing. Interestingly, Elisha would experience a double portion of Elijah, that rested on Elijah. Elijah, it's recorded in the, in the Old Testament, performed 14 miracles. But Elisha performed 28 miracles. Exactly double of what Elijah had done. But there's a key here. There's, there's, there's a condition that Elijah imposes upon his protege. He says this in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. He says, if you see me, when I'm taken, it shall be yours. But interestingly, we know that there was a point where Elijah literally tried to, to, to wave him off. 
on several times. Elisha, stay here. I'm going to Jericho. No, 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 no. No, no, God forbid. Uh, that, no, 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 I'm going to go with you. So he goes with him. Oh, uh, stay here. I'm going here. And Elisha says, no, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going with you. I'm not going to leave. And then finally, when the hour comes, when Elijah is taken up with that chariot of fire, then we know that Elisha was present. He was with him. And he literally, that mantle was passed on to Elisha. This is Old Testament, guys. So don't try to correlate it to the New Testament. But there is a sense in which the, more, the fullness of God's presence is something that we have to seek. We have to hunger, right? Because Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. So it's, it depends upon our appetite. It depends on, on what we desire. But here's an interesting thing. When he says, if you see me when I'm taken up, it shall be given to you. But when you look at it in the Hebrew, I, I'm just going to propose a little bit of a different translation today. The interesting thing is in the Hebrew, the word me is not there. It literally can be translated, if you see when taken, it'll be yours. So the idea is, I believe, is this. The vision, that which he was believing God for, I want a double portion. I want the fullness. I want everything that you have in store for me. And some of us would say, isn't that the height of audacity? Isn't that being arrogant? No, no, no. We have to get beyond our small-mindedness and mentality. We have to come to the point where we believe that God wants to bless us so vastly, so, so immensely, that we, get, we are able to do those things that he's called us to do. Because if we have this small mentality of, oh, you know what? I'm just a humble servant and God, you know, I just want to make it into the kingdom one day. That's very selfish because we're not coming to the point where we're allowing God to use us the way that he wants to. It's not by our, our righteousness. It's not through our efforts that we receive the fullness of this spirit. But it's our availability and it's our hunger and it's our openness from the, God, from the Lord. And it is faith. It is faith saying, I believe that God can use me to heal the sick, raise the dead, bring a revival, move by the power of his spirit to pray down the fire of God on my city, on my nation. I believe that God wants to use me to do these things. I'm not just going to be a Christian who rocks up to church on Sunday and does my little religious thing. It's time we begin to believe God for the, those things that are just so big and so bountiful that are the promises of God so we can do what he's called us to do and impact all the people he's called us to impact. So let me propose that the verse could be translated this way. If you see it, the vision of the double portion, and you've not given up, you've not relented in pursuing it, but you're still going after it. When I'm caught up, it shall be yours. It shall be yours. Last week, I listed several of the characteristics of revival. One of those characteristics when you know that revival is truly at work is within a group of people, a vision comes alive regarding what could be. What could be. In other words, no. 
This isn't enough. This is too small for God. This is not enough. There must be more. There's got to be something greater. There is. What could be? What could be? What could happen if I really gave myself unreservedly to God? What would happen if we as a church really began to pray and cry out after God? If we broke out of our lukewarmness, of our complacency, of our self-centeredness, and just being content where we're at, and we began to really seek God for what He wants to do, what could be? That's revival. That's the beginning of revival. Okay, God, there's more. I'm not putting up with this. I'm not going to go to my grave without seeing a move of the Spirit. I'm not going to die, settle for mediocrity. I'm going to seek you until I see the fullness of your kingdom power manifested. I want to see a move of God. I want to see a revival. God's always moving. God's always working. But if we're just standing there waiting, like one day when God's in a good mood, he's going to do it. That's not, we're not going to experience it. There comes a point where we are changed, we are transformed as we seek him. Let me close with this scripture. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we're told... That the people in the day of the early church marveled at Peter and John when they saw their boldness. They perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They looked at these guys. They weren't schooled in rabbinical theology or, or the, you know, the oratory schools of, of, of the Greek philosophers. They, they weren't educated in that sense. So it wasn't their education, it wasn't their eloquence, it wasn't their expertise that caused them to marvel. But here's what it says. They marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. They realized they had been with Jesus. Unless your presence goes with us. I'm a carrier of your presence. When I walk into a room, I want it to be so true that people will say, wow, the presence of God, there's something. There, there. I remember when I first started out, before I was a pastor, before I went to any type of you know, training to be in ministry, I actually worked in a factory that made English muffins for McDonald's. That was my job. But it was a mission field. Revival broke out there. I was so on fire for God that everybody knew and heard the gospel. When people would say things, you know, I'd just answer with boldness. They'd take the Lord's name in vain. We'd be sitting in the, in the cafe, in the cafeteria eating, and they'd take his name in vain, and I'd say, uh, no, 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 Mr. Christ to you, you don't know him. <laughs> and everybody would look at me Yeah, I, I tell the truth. And I had people that hated me. 
But then I began to see the walls go down. I began to see people, when they got in trouble, guess what? They were calling me. Can you come to the hospital? My, my daughter is dying. So we went to the hospital and we prayed for the little girl who had, uh, what, what is it, that infection thing it can cause you to, to become deaf? Meningitis, thank you. Spinal meningitis. And we, she was like dying. Her fever was so high. And we prayed for her. And they said that she wouldn't, she actually had not urinated and they were really concerned. And so as soon as we prayed for her, guess what she did? And as soon as she did that, they realized, oh my gosh, something's happened here. The next day they released her from the hospital. You see, the miracles happened. And it was just a case of carrying the presence. And these guys would say to me, I had people say this. They didn't say it directly to me, but they would say to other people, what is it about Glenn? There's something different about him. Like he's totally different than anyone else. What is it? And then some people told me, oh, yeah, this is what people are saying about you. And I said, you know what that is? It's the Jesus. It's the presence of the Lord. And what ended up happening is people got saved. People came to the Lord because of the presence and the anointing. And I believe that as we really focus on developing that intimacy, we get back into his presence. We're going to see God pour out his spirit because he's looking for people who will steward what he wants to do. That are what will, will walk in what he wants to do. And I believe that in the beginnings, for some of us, there needs to be just this recommitment to seek after God, to get into his presence. We, the Bible says, if any of you is in trouble, in James chapter 5, verse 14, let him pray. Let him pray. Are you in trouble? Do you have difficulty, trials? Pray. Are you going through hardship? Pray. Fast. Lock yourself in a room. Get a... Get a a jug of water and go off somewhere and fast and pray. Do whatever you have to do until things turn around. When Lynn was potentially dying at one point years ago and they, they thought maybe she had cancer, I began to pray and seek God. I went on an extensive fast. I prayed. I sought the Lord. After 21 days of fasting, God healed her. There was another time when we were in the midst of a revival, a move of God was happening in a church that we were pastoring, and the enemy was coming against us, and we were driving down the road, literally, after church one day, and all of a sudden, she goes into this seizure, this massive seizure, and we took her to the hospital, and they said she had severe epilepsy. She's going to be on medication forever, and she won't be able to drive I said, no way, no way. So we began to fast and pray again. And within a couple of weeks, she felt that God had so touched her, that she was so, much, so better, so different, that she didn't have to take the medication anymore. She stopped taking the medication. That was in 1982, 83, no, 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 19, thank you. 88 or so, 1988, she's never had a seizure. She's never taken medication, not once. You can try to rationalize it, say what you want. 
I just believe it's a miracle. And I've seen this, and I know when we get back to really seeking God, we're going to start to see our loved ones getting saved. We're going to start to see miracles take place. God is going to move in our midst. God is going to do great things because he's waiting. When we're saying, God, come down, he's saying, come up. Come on, this worship team, you guys come, please. This is a time to seek the Lord. We know the scripture says without a vision, people perish, right? Let's stand together, please. Without a vision, people perish. Can also be translated this way, and you'll see this in different versions of the Bible. Without revelation, people cast off restraint. Without revelation, people cast off restraint. Why do people live the way they live? Aimlessly, recklessly? Because they, they don't have a vision of God and his purpose for their life. You, you can say, well, this is my plan. This is my purpose. And guess what? That's not going to necessarily cause you to overcome those things that you need to overcome to get there. But when you have a vision of God... When you really know who he is and you see him for who he is, that can change your life. It will change your life if you embrace it and you stick with it. The Apostle Paul, through all of the difficulties and suffering, at the end of his life, he said, I've not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. I've not been disobedient to that heavenly vision. Many years ago, when Jesus appeared to me on the road, to Damascus that vision I've never stopped embracing that I've never stopped I believe it I believe it God wants to give us a vision again of who he is he wants to reveal himself for who he is he wants to show you and me how minuscule our problems are and everything else is so that we're not focused on that we're not discouraged by those things those things aren't overwhelming us. They're not controlling us. And that we just begin to believe that God's going to do something. God's going to change. And obviously, there are things that need to change circumstantially in our lives. But the thing that needs to change first and foremost is us. We need to change. We need to become the person he wants us to be to get into his presence. Let's just take a few moments. We're going to worship the Lord. If you're here today and you just feel, yeah, God is speaking to me this morning through this word, I'd invite you just to come. You might want to kneel, stand, but just come and just make a fresh... Hello, this is Discover, and we take customer service very seriously. We know that if you have a question or concern about your credit card, that's a serious matter, and you need to talk to a real person about it. So we offer around-the-clock access to seriously talented representatives in the USA. Again. It's a serious endeavor. The only funny thing about it is Bob. If you call us and Bob answers, you're in for a treat. Get 100% U.S.-based customer service and talk to a real person day or night. Discover exceptionally common sense.